Welcome to Old Fashioned Finance, the podcast that mixes cocktails and high finance. I'm your host, Jason Demland, and I am joined as always and in the future by my good friend and fellow money muddler, Caleb Frankert. Jason, can a podcast about finance be entertaining? Not without alcohol. Well, all right, let's mix it up. Caleb, how are you today? I'm doing great. I'm back (laughs) from vacation. Doing great. Yes, yes, you are. I'm glad you got to take some time off. You got to recharge. Why don't you tell us all about it, but in 10 words or less? 10 words or less. Okay, let's see. Baseball camp, play dates, cookouts, tick bites, road trip. That's nine. One to spare. (laughs) Depending on how you hyphenate those words. I mean, you might have had some more time. That sounds fun, though. It sounds like some summer stuff, man. Yeah. It was a lot of just being dad, which is really cool. Mm -hmm. The kids were off school. Last week was their first week on summer vacation. So there was a baseball camp, which, you know, I am a baseball nut. So had a lot of time, a lot of fun taking my son to baseball camp. That was a good time. They had some play dates, the cookouts, you know, those were fun. Tech bites, not so much. No. (laughs) At least I think what was a a tech bite. It's really weird when you go to the doctor and you're like, hey, thought that I should get this checked out. And he looks at it and goes, yeah, whoa. And I say, (laughs) what is it? And he's like, I don't know. (laughs) I think you'll be okay, though. (laughs) You'll probably be fine. Surely it wasn't. probably be fine. (laughs) It wasn't an alien. Worst case scenario, it's really bad, but probably not. And a bonus, you could end up with superpowers. You don't know. Well, that's what I was kind of hoping. Uh, he said, no, nah, I think you're just fine. I'll prescribe an antibiotic just in case. And I was like, well, if you think I'm already fine and it's going down, then I don't know. I don't want to risk giving up a superpower. So nothing <laughs> yet. We'll see. An antibiotic could thwart superpowers. Yeah. Well, man, that's awesome. I'm really glad that you're back because I wouldn't have someone to talk about one of my favorite summer drinks with. Oh, are we talking about uh, gin and tonics today? (laughs) G&T? Yes, yes, we are. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) And to make it even better, we're going to plumb the depths of using health savings accounts to save and invest for retirement slash financial independence. Cool. Sounds like we're going to have a great show in store for everyone today. I'm excited. Not only because of how much I love a good GNT, and you know I do. Oh, yeah. But also because the HSA is a great and often underutilized tool in the proverbial tool belt of carpentry, what we call building financial independence. Or if you were Batman in this scenario, you'd... I don't know. I don't know. Uh, Whoa, man. Tool belt. What? (laughs) Whoa. (laughs) Yeah, I tried talking like you for a little bit there, and uh, it just started to kind of scramble my brain. So thanks for being you. (laughs) Let me pick that up for you, buddy. Okay. 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 In the utility belt buckled around your waist as you wage battle against all of the financial villains in your life, there resides an invaluable tool. Nestled between your Roth IRA and 401k, not nearly as often used as your primary income streams and budgeting skills, sits your HSA, your health savings account. It could be likened to the lemon or cucumber you've placed in your gin and tonic to give it that extra boost, that je ne sais quoi, to put your financial plan over the top. There it is. (laughs) You are the master. I tried to go there, but wow, you nailed it. Uh, All right. 
Before we dive into the gin and tonic, Jason, you've set that up wonderfully. Uh, <laughs> before we get into that in the HSA, let me just take a moment to remind all of our beloved listeners that we cherish so very, very much. We would like your presence at the Speakeasy located on facebook.com slash old-fashioned finance speakeasy. It's a private group where all of us money muddlers can get together and talk about money and drinks, hopefully a little bit of both in more depth. We'll also be giving out some special goodies here that are available only to our Speakeasy members. Is that correct, Jason? That is that is correct, Caleb. We've got a great community already starting to coalesce. Uh, and it's really exciting just to see people joining and asking questions and being buddies, kind of what we're all about. Yeah, it's starting to get some legs and we want it to be an interactive experience. If you've got any questions, let them rip. It will get you pointed in the right direction. So that being said, Jason, teach us a little bit about the gin and tonic. Before you do, I have to say, you are a gin and tonic master. This would be, I would say, probably the best drink that you make. And I've been enjoying these with you for years. I think when we talk recipes, we should be doing Jason's gin and tonic. But all that being said, teach me. That is high praise. Thank you very much, Caleb. This is one of the least complicated drinks to make, so I'm glad I don't screw it up. But <laughs> you guys, it's the summer. This is the, this is the best drink to have kind of in your back pocket, I think, because it's refreshing mm-hmm. and uh, it's great. It's got a nice balance of flavors, like kind of it kind of feels sweet, kind of feels refreshing and bitter. I'm a huge fan of it, Caleb. I can ascribe that to my my grandma Ditto who uh, would have them usually when we're on vacation. She also had a lot of rum-based drinks, but I didn't like that. Um, <laughs> actually, the first drink I ever snuck was a teaspoonful of my grandma's rum. I mean, I think I was probably six, 16. I don't know. That's embarrassing. But it when you take rum and you've never had an alcoholic beverage in your entire life and you have it on a teaspoon, it's going to taste a lot like medicine. And uh, yeah. So I don't revere that nearly maybe, as much. Maybe not when you're 16 years old. When you crawled up on grandma's lap at 16. And <laughs> <laughs> she would read me a bedtime story. Well, I, I remember my first sip of beer and my mom was so upset with my dad about it. But I can remember, you know, when you're little, you're like, hey, dad, can I drink what you're drinking? And he's like, yeah, you wouldn't like this. And I go, dad, can I drink what you're drinking? And he goes, yeah, sure. Go ahead. Take a sip. And, you know, my reaction was pretty obvious. And dad said, yeah, you won't do that for a long time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I had a totally like scientific approach to trying out alcohol uh, for the first time. So the teaspoon like that was just to taste what it tasted like. And it was repulsive. My first taste of beer was on accident at uh, a county fair when I thought I was grabbing a pop out of the cooler. So I had a predictable reaction well do you do you ever like you think you're gonna drink a glass of mountain dew and it's milk like just imagine that you think it's gonna be mountain dew and it's beer it's equally repulsive you think that yeah oh this has gone horribly bad yeah it reminds me of garth and wayne's world too uh when he's (laughs) at uh miss hornay's house and uh she makes him a drink and uh he sips it and immediately spits it out this coke's gone bad Yes, it was an acquired taste for me, Um, (laughs) but I have much better memories with the gin and tonic because I tried that later in life. It was my grandma's signature drink, and I'm sure it's a lot of grandma's signature drink, so it takes a lot of flack. You and I are proud supporters of the gin and tonic, though. Yeah. It's nice to be able to proselytize here on this platform we have. When I'm a grandma, I'm going to be drinking G&Ts. That's right. All right, let's dive into the gin and tonic. Uh, And I want to start, as I usually do, 
with a quote by Winston Churchill. (laughs) The gin and tonic has saved more Englishmen's lives and minds than all the doctors in the empire. Winston Churchill is a a famous drinker, and he had high praise for the gin and tonic. Pretty Uh, smart guy, too. And very quotable. I should I oh, should yeah. start everything with a Winston Churchill quote. I All bet right. you going there forward, a- <laughs> starting now, <laughs> right now. <laughs> so the primary ingredient in a G and T is the G, and that stands for gin, which stands for Geneva. Geneva. I did Geneva, not know that. Uh, which is Dutch, and uh, <laughs> so how did the famous alcohol consumer and top five most quotable world leader Winston Churchill and his fellow Brits come to go crazy for this Dutch based spirit? Uh, well, there are theories that monks in the Middle Ages flavored some of their spirits with juniper. Mm-hmm. Uh, but wherever gin started, it's obvious that around the 17th century, the Netherlands were flush with gin. It was the national spirit of choice. Uh, so this is a very Dutch-based drink. I didn't know that about gin until I started researching it. By the 18th century, England loved gin thoroughly, too, even though it was seen as a depravity-related beverage rather than a fine spirit like English ales at first. And uh, you can you can Google images of, like, of gin and like uh, gin has a negative connotation about drinking probably because a lot of the bathtub made gin people Mm. were using it just as a way to get drunk it wasn't a complicated drink but you know the british had a big interest in india around this same time around the 18th century and malaria kept killing everyone it was a really serious problem but i'd say (laughs) somehow or another someone discovered that that quinine, I probably am saying that wrong. Quinine, I think it's quinine. Which quinine is ex- sounds right. It's extracted. Be confident. From, Go with it. Quinine, <laughs> which is extracted from Jesuits' bark. Um, someone discovered that that could fight infection, uh, specifically from malaria. The problem was and remains that quinine is barely edible. It's pretty gross. I read an article about this bartender, this mixologist that was trying to deconstruct and make like the best gin and tonic, and they got this. Jesuits bark powder and they were adding it straight to the drink and it was awful. He got down to a 16th of a teaspoon of Jesuits bark to put in the drink and it was still barely palatable, he said. So this stuff is really strong quinine and it's the quinine in there. So the answer to this was to dilute the quinine in soda water and sugar back then so people could take their medicine and, and stop dying from malaria. A spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. Absolutely. And uh, In this case, what's better than just sugar? Well, add gin. Gin was a common ration at the time for British soldiers. So it wasn't a far leap to imagine that some soldiers just started spiking their quinine cocktails with gin to help the medicine go down. That's kind of how it got started, probably without any specifics. Cool. And after that happened, (gasps) enter Bond. James Bond? No. Oh. No. Erasmus Bond. Oh, we already talked about him. (laughs) Yeah. We did not talk about Erasmus Bond. (laughs) Who's that? (laughs) He's the guy that created the first commercial tonic water in 1858. And then a company that we might know named Schweppes launched Indian Quinine Tonic to market to British people in India. Boom. The gin and tonic was born. Awesome. That's where it came from. It's... I think from this research that I've done and now have educated all of you with, it is conclusively a health drink. This is a health tonic. I guess so. Um, You're right. Even though the amount of quinine in your gin and tonic isn't nearly enough to fight malaria anymore, you'd have to drink around 30 of them a day uh, to go without DEET-infused off or cut or bug sprays. Challenge <laughs> accepted. <laughs> It's been hot and muggy around here the past few days, and I can uh, hardly think of a drink more refreshing. Um, If I was going to try 30 of anything. (laughs) (laughs) You would have to have 
roughly the equivalent alcohol tolerance of Winston Churchill himself <laughs> to be able to handle 30 gin and tonics, I think, especially with the recipe uh, that we're going to use. That's interesting. I There's a lot of new information there that I did not know. The fact that Winston Churchill was a fan just bolsters this for me, though. Yeah, I'm not sure that that really means much. I think he's a fan of pretty much every <laughs> alcohol that exists. I'm not certain of that, but... To, but to it makes say me that, feel smarter liking what he likes. Absolutely. He was a great leader in history, and he was a proponent of the gin and tonic, which is why at least everyone listening should at least give it a shot. I agree. <laughs> oh, so you wanna, yeah. let's share the recipe, right? Yeah. Is this is this Jason's gin and tonic, or, or did you pull another recipe? I pulled from David Wondrich, kind of. I'll share my recipe. I'll share his too. But but basically, I'll give you a few principles for the gin and tonic. So there are all sorts of fancy gins out there that might make for an awesomely complex martini. But those kinds of gins tend to get drowned out by the quinine in the tonic water. So it's best, in my opinion, and several other people's opinions, to use a a London dry gin for this, a Tanqueray, a Beefeater, uh, something like that. That is... Just a London dry gin. And it's my preference for a juniper heavy gin. So mm-hmm. the, the great thing about this cocktail is that you can make it pretty cheaply, especially if you use Beefeater and Schweppes. So that's what we did in our drinks today. And here's a simple recipe for it. Two to three ounces of London dry gin, six ounces of tonic water, a large lime wedge, and a few ice cubes. That's really it. You pour the gin over ice. You cut a lime wedge and pop it in there. You then pour the tonic water over ice too. And there you go. You shouldn't even have to stir it. My own preference is to about do even amounts tonic water and gin. Uh-huh. Uh, I usually, I usually do about two ounces of gin, three ounces of tonic water. And if you're health conscious, I found that diet Schweppes actually tastes pretty awesome. Yeah. Uh, in a gin and tonic. I don't know what it is, but not having having that aspartame or something, it's it's got a better aftertaste. It's it's a little lighter. It's a little yeah. little more crisp, I think. I normally don't like diet, but I agree with you. I think the diet tonic water is better. And I like the fact that you make it a little more boozy. <laughs> yeah, I think I just they the flavors play off each other really well. This is great. You can you can mess with the ratios yourself. I've had just tonic water by itself before when I wanted a refreshing drink. So something about it has gotten me kind of liking that taste too. But if you want to go fancier, I would not spend money on a on a high dollar gin. Not for this drink, at least. Not for this drink. But I would experiment with different tonic waters because they all have different flavor profiles too. Mm-hmm. They interact differently. We've had uh, really good experiences with the Q brand of tonic water. Yeah. And their ginger beer is also phenomenal. Very good. Uh, so that's okay too. It's a little more expensive. So if you want to upgrade this drink, I don't know, get a really fancy lime and a really fancy tonic water, <laughs> but stick with a pretty basic London dry gin. Cool. It's a simple drink and sometimes simpler is better, isn't it? Sometimes. <laughs> All right, so moving on to our finance topic for today, we are talking about HSAs, health savings Mm -hmm. accounts. Jason and I know a lot of people who are wondering why we'd spend a bunch of time here. It really is kind of an afterthought in regards to saving for your retirement and financial independence. It usually doesn't even come up. It has become a very good option, though, however, for saving for retirement because it offers both the benefits of tax-deductible contributions and tax-free distributions it's arguably the best retirement savings vehicle exists. That's a big statement, isn't it? 
That's bold. We spent a whole episode introducing the Roth IRA and and how much we love it and why we love it. But if you combine that with a with a health savings account, that might be the most tax advantaged way that there is right now to save for retirement. Hopefully that piques your interest. It's something you need to consider. Caleb, give us an overview of the rules for using an HSA. I will. There are some rules. Uh, <laughs> otherwise, it would be too good to be true. Um, <laughs> right. So for listeners that do want to do a deep dive into this topic and how it impacts their plan, I recommend checking out Michael Kitz's Nerd's Eye View, his blog post. I recommend him a lot. He's just a wealth of knowledge. It's kind of like drinking from a fire hose, but you're going to get good information uh, if you're a little nerdy about this stuff, which I mean, if you're listening to the, the podcast, you might be. So that could be right up your alley. We'll put a link to that into the blog post for the episode. Uh, and also in the show notes. Um, so you can find that uh, if you want to look into it a little bit more. So the HSA came about in 2003, thanks to the Medicare Modernization Act. Thanks to George W. w. <laughs> At its core, it was created as a tax deferred savings account to be used for medical expenses. Basically, you put your money into the HSA before taxes. That's pre-tax, kind of like a 401k. Mm-hmm. So it's either deductible if you contribute directly to the HSA or it's excluded from income if your employer contributes or sometimes they'll match for an employee too. Uh, everybody has a little bit different setup, but mm-hmm. normally people that have this option available, there's some benefits to the employer too. So a lot of times they're kicking in a match or, or they're just making a chunk, you know, a contribution at the beginning of the year. So if you take the money out for qualified medical expenses, that withdrawal is tax-free, right? So it goes into the account pre-tax, but if it's a qualified withdrawal, tax-free, never taxed. That's a great deal. There is a penalty if you take the money out of your health savings account incorrectly, like mm-hmm. IRAs and, and you know 529s and all these other tax advantage savings vehicles. With IRAs, the tax penalty is 10%. With an HSA, it is a 20% penalty. Boom. Yeah. So you're not going to use your HSA debit card to buy Skittles at the grocery store. Probably not a great <laughs> idea. Skittles could be medicine, right? (laughs) Well, it could be. That's the great thing with all of this, though. (laughs) What counts as a qualified medical expense? I mean, it covers a lot of bases. I've been surprised over the years at what people use this for. You you know, like I say, work the tax code, baby. You you got to work that tax code. (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) anyway, uh, the tax penalty is waived if you're over 65 years old or disabled. Yeah, um, that's where that's where it really gets interesting. Over 65. Yeah. Um, because not only are you more likely to spend money on medical expenses as you get older, we, you know, you get older, you have more medical issues, you need to spend more on it. You're, you have more prescriptions, you have more doctor's appointments. That usually makes sense. Um, but if you make it to 65, you can take your tax deductible money that you put in possibly many, many years ago. Mm-hmm. You can take that out tax free. That's a double whammy. Yeah. Uh, well, Maybe it's the opposite of whammy. Uh, whammies, I think whammies are bad. Well, right? no, not necessarily. What's, there, what's it called when you're the one doing the hitting, doing the whammying? <laughs> it's, uh, is, it, it's still, is it still a whammy if you're not being hit? I think a whammy is like a curse, Caleb. No, so, well, no, I don't know. I think of Champ Kind from Anchorman. Uh, whammy! <laughs> uh, Johnson takes the pitch and whammy! <laughs> Whammy's a home run. <laughs> Oh, okay, I guess I guess it that depends makes sense. on what your reference point is. I'm <laughs> I'm going with Champ Kind, San Diego sports <laughs> caster. The point is, it's a it's a it's if a whammy is a curse, Caleb. It's a double whammy to the tax man, <laughs> and this is a great double whammy. I think yeah. this is awesome. <laughs> yeah, if you can if you can whammy the tax man all day, 
all day. Quimmy. <laughs> yeah, and if you do use the HSA money before age 65, you don't have the penalty on uh, the withdrawal. If it is qualified medical expenses, uh, like I said before, remember that. Um, mm-hmm. But what that does mean is that pretty much any expense that's eligible for a medical expense deduction on your taxes counts. Yeah. So doctor's bills, surgeries, preventative care, that kind of stuff, but also medications that are prescribed, even the health insurance premiums in some, some cases. So under COBRA yeah. or while unemployed, Medicare premiums as well, and sometimes long-term care insurance. So I mean, it's yeah. pretty broad what it covers. Yeah, like you were saying, that's a lot more liberal than what I would assume that it was. These reasons make using an HSA a no-brainer for saving for retirement. Especially, you know, we've got, that's the most tax-advantaged vehicle there is, that you can possibly put something away pre-tax, not pay any taxes on it at all while it grows, and then take the money out without paying taxes on it. That's what we want. We don't want to ever pay taxes. I think that if you're listening to this, you're probably wondering, why doesn't everyone do this? Mm. And there's there's a really good reason for that. <laughs> Not everyone is eligible to participate right. in a health savings account. So let's go through some of the rules. To be eligible, you have to be covered under what's defined as a high deductible health plan. And you cannot be enrolled in other health coverage like Medicare. And you can't be a dependent on someone else's Now, there, there is a triple whammy. That's a lot of bad whammies. <laughs> So sorry, everyone. But this this is a good this is a good reason to pay attention to what kind of health insurance you're participating in yeah. and weighing the pros and cons of different plans. A pay attention plan. during your open enrollment periods and things like that. And I would just say that more and more companies are going to the high deductible health plans. Uh, it's becoming oh, yeah. in a lot of cases, even my wife works for the school system and, you know, they're known for their good benefits. They're pushing towards all high deductible. Yeah. It's lower premiums, so lower premiums for the employer, usually. That can kind of be a bummer. I know a lot of people don't like that. They want full, awesome coverage. Uh, And this is kind of a silver lining to that high deductible plan. And I want to talk to you. We're going to talk about more about why it's actually quite cool. And hopefully you can can hack into there. But uh, to meet the requirements to be a high deductible health plan, it has to meet some requirements that the IRS put forward. And maybe it wasn't the IRS. Is it the IRS that does that? You know, that's a great question. Congress, ultimately. <laughs> it's on the IRS website, so I'm assuming yeah. that they're the ones that have come up with all these rules. Yeah. T- Who gets so, their authority from Congress? There. there Congress. That's right. Congress is where the buck stops. Write your senator if you don't like this, but there's <laughs> contribution limits a lot like with IRAs, and there are requirements to be a high deductible plan. Caleb, you are in the midst of becoming a tax professional and cramming for it, so I'm giving you the honors of telling people kind of the rules. So take it away, Mr. Work That Tax Code. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so according to healthcare.gov, for, for the year 2021, the IRS defines a high deductible health plan as any plan with a deductible of at least $1,400 for an individual or $2,800 for a family. A high deductible health plan's total yearly out-of-pocket expenses. So this includes your deductibles, co-payments, uh, co-insurances, things like that can't be more than $7,000 for an individual or $14,000 for a family. This limit does not apply to out-of-network services. So, I mean, there's, again, like anything else, there's some real nuance with this stuff. That's why you work with a qualified tax professional <laughs> to deal with the nuance. <laughs> yeah, there it is complicated. I got to add one thing in there because I've talked about health sharing ministries before on this show. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what I currently use. So if you're self-insured, uh, that meaning that you pay out of pocket, your own pocket for medical stuff, or, or if you use a sharing group like MediShare or Christian Healthcare Ministries, 
you do not qualify for an HSA. Those yeah. programs, those programs got an exemption from the Obamacare ruling, so you didn't have to pay the tax for being uninsured, but they did not qualify as a high deductible plan. So you cannot set up an HSA. This is a big bummer in my personal financial situation, being self-employed and using Christian Healthcare Ministries. And it's really the biggest reason that we keep looking. Well, there's other reasons, but it's one of the biggest reasons that we keep looking for a decent alternative for healthcare and looking at the exchange. I'd really like to be able to use an HSA to save for retirement. Yeah, it, it would be great. You're right there. It is a bummer. It's it's a whammy. <laughs> whammy. But again, maybe a reason to write your congressman. These things are changing every year, just like the limits change and all of that. So, I mean, speaking yeah. of limits, more limits and more rules, right? <laughs> Let's Yay. get into annual contribution limits. So for 2021, you're limited to $3,600 for an individual and $7,200 for a family. So as long as you qualify for an HSA, you can make these pre-tax contributions. There's no income limitations, which is really nice. Uh, when yes. we look at Yeah, when we're looking at traditional IRAs, deductibility, there's definitely income limits. When we're looking at Roth IRAs and eligibility for contributions, definitely income limits. Not so here with the health savings account, which yeah. again is a reason that you you know if it's available to you, Make sure you're utilizing this tool and your Batman tool belt. I, I know that I didn't put it as eloquent. Use the HSA. Use the, use the belt. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, the fact that there's no income limits is great. Um, that That's a huge bonus, uh, especially for high earners. So as long as you're enrolled in the qualifying high deductible health plan, you can make deductible contributions to your HSA. And as long as you're using that money for qualified expenses or you wait till you're age 65, you don't pay taxes on the distributions. You know, maybe I'm jumping ahead here a little bit, but I look at, you know, a situation where someone's maxing out all of their retirement dollars in their 401k, they're maxing out what they can in a Roth IRA or or a traditional IRA, whatever else they're doing, and, and they're still looking for ways to uh, defer some taxes. Well, we know that a lot of people would say, all right, we'll use annuities for the tax deferral. What about a health savings account? <laughs> if you've got this option available, you know, I, I haven't looked at these numbers in a couple of years, but I know from a financial planning background, you know, it's it's got to be higher now than what it was whenever I read this last. But it's estimated that each individual throughout their retirement will spend around two hundred fifty thousand dollars on health care. So, mm -hmm. you know, even regardless of the sixty five rule, it's a great idea to put money away for it, most likely you're going to be able to, you know, when we talk about 529s, a lot of people say, oh, what if we don't use this? What if my kids get scholarship? Mm -hmm. The idea of what if I don't have healthcare expense in retirement is just crazy. <laughs> it's going to happen. Um, if you're, you know, if you get above $250,000 in your HSA, you're doing real good. You're doing real good. We need to talk. That's right. I, I think it's important. <laughs> I've been working on trying to get a bunch of rules of thumb together for our listeners so we can make it real easy to, to understand like the hierarchy of retirement savings vehicles. What should you prioritize? We spent a long time talking about the Roth IRA. I think obviously it's the first place most people should look mm -hmm. uh, aside from maybe their match in, a, in an employer plan. So I think it goes match in an employer plan, Roth IRA, probably the employer plan again. But maybe not. It might go match Roth IRA HSA if you've got the ability. That's how awesome this this is because yeah. you'll use it. So, for, so for reference for you right here, this is a, a good tidbit. Memorize this traditional IRA. If you if you make contributions to that, they're deductible. The contributions are, and then the distributions are taxable as ordinary income if you follow the rules. Mm -hmm. For a Roth IRA, the contributions are after tax. You already paid tax on that money and you put the money in, and then distributions are tax free. 
if you follow the rules. For an HSA, the contributions are tax deductible upfront, and then the distributions are tax-free if you follow the rules. That's the only one that's a double whammy. Double whammy. (laughs) Yes, that's great. We're excited about it. (laughs) As much as we love it, I admittedly probably don't talk to clients enough about this. Well, I'm going to hold you to doing that. Do you not love your clients? I love them. Some of them might be listening to to (laughs) you right now, and you should apologize to them. I'm sorry. At our next review, let's talk about HSAs. Boom. Really, if you think about it, if you could throw an extra $7,200 in tax deferral slash tax-free savings away, why wouldn't you explore that option? And, and in fact, there are you know young families who maybe they have the high deductible health plan as an option at work uh, for their their health insurance, but they've got the you know the traditional PPO or or the the quote unquote good insurance too. Well, heck, yeah. um, you know you got to kind of do a little bit of digging and find out what you really do spend uh, on medical. And it might be, it might be advantageous to go the high deductible route if you have the option, just because mm-hmm. of this added element mm-hmm. of savings here and, and tax deferral slash tax free double whammy, double whammy that could be available <laughs> to you. It's definitely worth exploring when you do your taxes. That's a great time to total up the receipts and find out how much you're really spending. Mm-hmm. We have a health savings account. I've had one for years and it's great whenever the kids need to go to the doctor to know that it's there. But also, I know that for the most part, I'm not spending that money and it's it's earning for me uh, in the meantime. But, you know, I don't think that you necessarily have to look at this as primarily a supplement to retirement income. Uh, it's, it's a great deal if you use it for medical expenses. But yeah. if you look at, you know, maybe your employer's offering you a thousand dollar match or something like that. I, I know one year we looked at it and we said, well, they're going to give me $1,000 for my family, regardless of what kind of contribution I make. And I, you know, I just did my taxes and found out we spent you know, $500 on medical this year. Why wouldn't I do that? Right. Yeah, it's definitely worth looking into, man. And there's, uh, so we'll talk about more of the, uh, the practical applications of that and how to do it and how it goes about uh, here, I think, here soon. We got more rules. So sorry about that. I, I went on a tangent a little bit. I really like the health savings account as, as an option if it's available <laughs> to you. And the truth of the matter is it's becoming widely available as high deductible health saving or health uh, insurance plans are, are, are becoming the norm. Yeah. So um, one of the things that I, I kind of touched on a little bit, which, um, you know, I, I don't want it to go unspoken. You don't have a time limit for when you spend the money. Right. We were assuming that when we're saying it can grow over time. But yeah, you don't exactly you don't, you don't have to spend it. It's not like, uh, so like flexible spending accounts and things like that, where they've got to be used, you know, you see a lot of people going to the eye doctor at the end of the year yeah. to, <laughs> to clean that account out. Uh, this is not the case. Um, and I think that is probably the account that this gets mixed up with the most. Yeah. Flexible spending accounts used to be a lot more popular, but you, you had to take money out of those at a certain time with this. Yeah, there is no deadline. You know, you can put money into an HSA and never take money out until you're retired and be just fine. Yeah, there are. And even even longer than that, there are there are it's just got really liberal rules applied to it. Mm -hmm. You can you can so you can use funds in your HSA to pay for current medical bills, or you can reimburse a prior bills. People don't know about that either. Like, so in theory, you could you could pay out of pocket for some medical stuff that you have happened, keep the receipts theoretically for 20 years and then reimburse yourself after the HSA has appreciated with market growth and value over those years, tax deferred. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you would actually do that, but a lot of people do. Uh, that's some p- extra paperwork. So you might not want to actually do that, but you can. That's the point of it. You this. can. 
Yeah, make sure you've got a good accounting system if you're doing that. <laughs> the, I've seen I've seen folks do it. You got um, the blockchain in the cloud. You can store that receipt on there probably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I I don't think that Bitcoin is an option yet in health savings accounts, but that's the that you know that's a good point to bring up because I think that with health savings accounts, a lot of times it's overlooked because you know let's say for example when I worked at the bank, we had a, a health savings account and we just basically set it up at the bank. And, you know, I think people would look at that and say, well, heck, why would I I have a fully Mm -hmm. funded emergency account? Why would I throw a bunch of money into a savings account earning point nothing? Right. Well, it's kind of few and far between. But if you've got the flexibility to set up an account wherever you decide, you can invest those funds like you would in a 401k or an IRA. A couple of companies that I know of for sure. Some bank broker dealers allow for that. Not many. But Fidelity is a big one. Everybody knows Fidelity, and that's a mm-hmm. self-directed platform. But yeah, I mean, if you're putting that money away and you're not planning, you're, let's say you're 30 years old and you're socking $7,200 a year into your health savings account, and you're just going to cash flow your current medical expenses, well, you know, 0.15% is not going to get you very far. I mean, mm-hmm. you're ahead of the game by, by putting that money in there tax-deferred slash tax-free if you take it out the right way. Yeah. But- if you can invest and earn 8, 10, 12% compounded annually, oh my gosh, game changer. Yeah, the idea is, is if you can get money into this account, it's a tax advantaged account. If you can leave it in there, you can follow the rules, maximize the growth on that. And like you were saying, lots of companies have an, an option to invest that, those funds that you have in your HSA. If your company is is hooked up with a, a bank that only has CD or money market or savings account rates attached to it, you can move it. That that HSA money mm-hmm. is yours. And the total amount of contributions to all your HSAs all over the place can't exceed those limits. But you can have 17 HSAs set up if you want. It's just that's a, a kind of a tracking nightmare for yourself. So I, I, yeah. I've helped people set up accounts uh, at, at those other custodians like Fidelity and Vanguard and TD Ameritrade, like you said. But the point is, you use this tax advantage money and you put it in this account, use the rules to maximize the growth. Then you end up using this on health expenses later before retirement age, even if you want, you'll be pretty far ahead if you do that. And it's also pretty likely that as you age, you'll end up spending quite a bit on healthcare anyway. Mm-hmm. And even if you end up on a, a non high deductible plan or on Medicare later, which most people do that at age 65, they go on to Medicare. You, you, you can't put any more money into your HSA when you're on that, but you can use that money still to pay for medical bills. Well, and if you're over, over 65, you can take the money out without that tax penalty. It is taxed. So you're not getting the super, the super awesome tax advantage. You're not getting the double whammy. It's just a single whammy. It's like, still a whammy. It's, it's more <laughs> like a traditional IRA in that case, except. Are we going to call this the whammy episode? <laughs> no, no, I don't think that's, no, okay. I don't think that's a good idea. But I wanted to get into then the the actual logistics of making this happen because this is a big question that I get. Uh It sounds so simple. So (laughs) what do people do? How do you invest your HSA money? And it's a lot easier. I know folks that where they work, the HSA that their company sets up for them has investment options in it. And you you have to go through some rigmarole to kind of get in there and then make the investments, pick the investments, what kind of investments you should be in. That's a whole other episode. So if your current employer offers that, I'd just start there. Mm -hmm. You don't have to stick with that if you don't want. If it's just a bank and your plan is to invest the money, I would move it. And a lot of people keep like one year's worth of deductions available in the health savings account as like an emergency fund for health. It's a tax advantage spot. That is a totally okay strategy. I've advised people to do that before. That's good. Uh, But really, 
and and most HSAs have rules on how much you can move out of the cash Correct. portion anyway. Uh, you can't usually invest 100% of it. Yeah, you might have to keep like a, a lot of times I see whatever your deductible is, you've got to keep that liquid. Yeah. You know, if you don't have a funded savings account uh, or an emergency savings, it probably is a good idea to have some of that liquid. Right? That'd be a necessity. You should, before you're doing this, you should have a three to six months of your total expenses saved up so that you can pay, you can pay your deductible, your out-of-pocket mm-hmm. maximum you should have that just in case there's an emergency so it doesn't make other problems. And and if you do that in your HSA, that's fine. But the rest of it, you would move to an investable account. You can and like Caleb, like you said, you just open that account at a Vanguard, at a Fidelity, at a TD Ameritrade. If you've got a financial advisor already, they probably have a place for you to do that and they can help you pick the investments. Yeah. We do that for folks too. So it's not that painful. It is a little extra legwork, but I think it's totally worth it. Once once you have the HSA funds on the investment pat- platform, you buy the investments and you hold them and then they grow. And I know people are thinking, what should I invest in? What should they invest in? Well, I would not overcomplicate <laughs> things. I think that just like anything, I, I look at this as a an overflow for a Roth IRA almost. Yeah. This is money that is earmarked for way down the road, probably. So you're going to invest with that long time horizon. You probably invest it similarly to your Roth IRA, which would be growth oriented. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, w- you know, we, we don't have to worry about generating capital gains or taxes inside of this account. So swing for the fences. And that's why it's important to have a fully funded emergency savings mm-hmm. if you use that savings for, for things that come up. Or maybe you have a sinking fund that you set up aside, but you kind of earmark that for your your medical expenses in the short term too. But yeah, if you're using this as extra tax deferral or tax-free income down the road, then you treat it just like any other tax-deferred slash tax-free investment. If you're not generating taxes in that account, you want that thing to grow exponentially. So swing for the fences, growth stocks, you know, heavy and uh, growth and international, maybe you, you want to be aggressive in that stuff because, you know, we're not, we're not talking really here for the most part to folks who are, you know, 65 years old and starting a health savings right. account. We're talking to, you know, someone who's maxing out their 401k or their Roth options or both. And they're looking for extra sources of tax deferral or tax savings. Use it for what you're using it for. <laughs> Grow the heck out of that money. And, you know, not to understate the obvious here, healthcare is probably not getting any cheaper anytime soon. So you might, need, you know, even if it is just for healthcare uh, related expenses in retirement, you probably need this to grow at 8 to 12% a year. <laughs> You, you probably need that just to keep up. I think up. aside from so. uh, college tuition, healthcare is inflating at the fastest clip over the last like 20 years of any. Yeah. I, I've heard anywhere from 5 to 10%. And sometimes I think that might be low. Yeah. It's, it's, it's getting more and more expensive, folks. And it is, it is a pain to deal with, with healthcare billing and all of that stuff. So it's nice if you got a big old stack of money there for it. And guess what? If you don't get sick and you don't need it there, I, we didn't touch on uh, inheriting one, but it's like, if you're married and you die, your, your spouse can just keep it as theirs. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a good asset to inherit altogether for the most part. So it's pretty simple. It's a lot like an IRA in that regard. It seems like a no brainer to me, Caleb, because you're probably going to need it for healthcare. And if you don't, you mm-hmm. can still take the money out. <laughs> and after 65, you can take the money out just like you could with an IRA, a traditional IRA. Um, it's pretty cool that we have this option. I just wish the contribution limits were a lot higher. 
you know, we see them move up every year, similar to your IRA rules and things like that. And a lot of people think, well, why would they allow you to do more of this? Well, because you're taking some of the burden off of, you know, I, I look at traditional IRAs, Roth IRAs, why do contribution limits go up? Why is the Roth IRA even allowed? You look at that and say, well, heck, why, why would the government want to do that? Why would the IRS, why would they make that bad deal? The truth is, if you take some of that on on yourself, you're less reliant on Social Security and, and things like that. So again, you know, so much of healthcare is subsidized. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you're willing to take some of that responsibility on your own, I think they're going to continue to raise limits. And I personally could see if, if healthcare continues to inflate exponentially like it does, I could see the limits going up drastically at some point. I, I do want to add a little bit of a disclaimer to this. So I think it's apparent you and I are not arguing one case versus another here. We're pretty united on this one. We like the health savings account. Nay, we we love the health savings account. <laughs> it's a great option. If you only have high deductible plans available, you need to explore this option. Mm-hmm. For those who are making that decision of whether they they should stick with their traditional health insurance or the high deductible plan because of this option, you know, you got to weigh your personal health and things like that. Yeah. You got to throw that into the mix. These are decisions that are just like anything else, I would say, if you've got a financial advisor that you trust and work with, um, you know, it's great to bring them in on this. They can put some numbers behind it, put some pen to the paper. You know, if you're riddled with pre-existing conditions and, you know, you've got $2,000 shots every month and things like that, well, you might not want to go this route if you have a better health insurance uh, option available. But I do think this is just my personal opinion. You probably agree. I think that high deductible health plans are the way of the future. I think everything is going to probably convert over to those at some point, And the health savings account is going to be all that more important to your overall financial plan. I agree. I think in summary, investigate it as a retirement mm-hmm. uh, planning option for you. I don't think this is as much of a gimmick as, say, 529 savings accounts are. Whoa. It's definitely not as much of a gimmick as an annuity. <laughs> Uh, this is this is an uh, a strategy to look for. The the purpose of it existing is to not make you have to pay and then claim a deduction for medical expenses that you have to hit a floor of. You have to have a lot of medical expenses to be able to deduct that on your taxes. The spirit of this legislation that introduced this is to make medical stuff that you pay for more tax advantaged. Have you pay less taxes on mm-hmm. it? The unintended consequence or intended consequence is we've created a a vehicle that makes it possible to save uh, pre-tax money, which is more money than you would have put in initially, let it grow tax deferred, which means that it's not getting taxed every year that you have capital gains. It's just growing. So there's more money growing. And then lets you take the money out if you follow all the rules without paying taxes again. So you need to look at that. The whole point of of building uh, investment accounts up is so that you can draw out of them to supplement things. And the only catch with this is to get the double whammy of double tax exemption. <laughs> it has to be for medical expenses. There's a really good chance that you're going to need to use it for medical expenses. And if you don't, yeah, it's still awesome. You still had tax deferred growth forever. Well, and you know, you you were uh, you didn't mince words when you said gimmick like a five twenty nine. <laughs> I don't know if I go that far. Those have their place. They have their place. They have their place. But, you know, I think that when you look at a 529, the question is, well, I don't know. There's a really good chance that maybe my kids won't go to higher education or maybe they'll get scholarships and I won't need this. But 
to say that I don't think I'll need healthcare as I get older is just, it's not an option. We talk about long-term <laughs> care a lot with a lot of people because it's a lot of yeah. people are really uh, concerned with being a burden to their family, spending down their entire nest egg. This is a good option for that too. You're just saving up. You can pay for your healthcare in old age, but with with a health savings account, can you imagine the uh, the effect of compounding over 60 or 50 or 40 years, it's huge. Like that could grow a lot over that time by the time you need it. So I think it's an awesome option. And just simply looking at the the taxable nature or the tax-free nature of withdrawals here, if you do it correctly, I think you could morph this into a lot of these scenarios that we've talked about, but long-term care, okay? You don't go from being a fully functional, super healthy individual to next day needing, you know, full-blown nursing care. It doesn't happen that way. You are going to probably spend a lot of money on medical expenses before you get to that point. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what I try to encourage clients to think about is, okay, if you have $10,000 in medical expenses and the only place that you're going to be able to withdraw from is your IRA, you need to take out more than $10,000 to net $10,000 after you pay the tax man. You don't get a pass because it's for medical. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, utilizing something something like this, the Roth IRA, having a good balance of taxable and tax-free in retirement is really important because it it also is just a part of, you know, when you're looking at spending down assets before you get into a long-term care situation, it's, you know, a much more efficient way to spend down assets and actually withdraw less money for the same mm-hmm. net impact, you know, that you would have versus what you'd have to take out of an IRA or something taxable, your 401k. If that makes sense. It's a whammy, Caleb. Let's distill it down for our listeners. What's one call to action you want our audience to do knowing this stuff? Yeah, you know what? We are in the month of June here and open enrollment is a few months down the road, but it'll be here before you know it. So October, November usually uh, is when you're going to get notification from your employers Uh, of any changes that you might be uh, experiencing in your health insurance plans, your retirement plans. You know, this is a great time to look at all uh, of your employee benefits for sure. But what you might see in there that you haven't uh, seen before is a high deductible plan with a health savings account uh, as an option. And the fact that your company may be willing to chip in to help you fund an HSA too. So that, in my opinion, is number one. Finding out if a high deductible plan is an option or could be the only option going forward. Do you have access to a health savings account? Mm-hmm. Yeah, my call to action is think about it. Think about your health savings account, your health insurance plan having a role in your retirement savings, your financial independence plan. It's often overlooked. Uh, we, like as you admitted, haven't done a perfect job. If we got it fully in depth, all the way down to the bones of everything uh, with every client. This is something we want to talk about. So mm-hmm. if you already work with us and you're listening, uh, let's talk about this. If you don't work with us and you work with someone else, talk to your financial ab- advisor about it. And when open enrollment comes along, like you said, Caleb, check it out. It might make sense for you and it's definitely worth looking into. There are variables that could disqualify you. There are variables that would make it not a good idea for you. But for a lot of people, it would make perfect sense. And we're just overlooking it. Yep. And like anything else, the earlier you start, the better. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. 
All right, Jason, we discussed a lot of really great stuff, had great drinks and great conversation. So I think it's time for uh, that part of the show. Questions straight up. All right, I got one here uh, from Bob, and Bob asks, or says, (laughs) and asks, (laughs) it seems like our government keeps spending money that we don't have, (laughs) then we print more money. My investments have done well, but I think inflation is coming. What do I do to prepare for that? Well, What a question. That's a great question, and I think the answer is simple. Razor wire, uh, barrels (laughs) of water, dried food, ammunition... I think that's how you gin and tonic. (laughs) (laughs) If if I may, Jason, you may, (laughs) Bob. I think that these are valid concerns. If you pay any attention to the political climate, and I try to pay as little attention as possible, (laughs) regardless of of uh, what I do for a living, it is disconcerting. You know, to see the spending at levels that it is, and the printing money. We have twenty five percent more money floating around than we did this time last year. That is huge. We pay for it at some point. You can't just kick the uh, the can down the road forever. And yes, logically speaking, you would say that inflation is going to have to rear its ugly head at some point. So I think valid concerns. Yes. What could inflation do, Jason, in the short term? If we had a spike in inflation, could that affect the markets? Absolutely. It would affect the markets. Inflation makes things more expensive. So yeah. Yeah. Okay. I agree (laughs) with you. I think that's obvious, and that's part of Bob's concern here. So valid concern. I have a hard time, though, when talking about inflation and changing our investment strategy because inflation might creep up. Because I'm going to ask you another question. Jason, what has been the best hedge for inflation over the last 80-some years? Well, I want to say Bitcoin or gold, (laughs) but I think it might be stocks, Caleb. Yeah. Uh, Bingo. Holding equities. So we know that we're in a low interest rate environment, and that's tricky. I think a lot of times our gut reaction to inflation is that the markets are going to go crazy. We should go to cash. That is a horrible idea. And right now, cash is paying nothing. Uh, So we could really time this wrong. Pull money out now. Move to cash that's earning nothing. Then we see inflation. And now what is our dollar worth? (laughs) Less. (laughs) (laughs) So equities for the long haul. I think that the only exception in my opinion here would be if you are that close to retirement that you need to be making withdrawals in the next couple of years, then maybe a a shift in your portfolio is justified here. However, I would say that that's regardless of what's going on with inflation. So it can be scary. I would say that typically when we see inflation moving up and the markets reacting, like most big events, most things that shake the markets, they're temporary, they're short term. If we're invested, we're in it for the long haul. Talk to your financial advisor. That, that, that's the big thing we need. You know, they probably put together a good plan for you and we need to execute the plan. So that's the big thing. Try to tune out the headlines. But again, if inflation is going to be a problem, historically speaking, owning stocks is the best way to keep up with inflation. That's basically what I would say, Caleb. I think inflation is a really valid concern right now. It's probably going to happen at some level. We don't know Mm -hmm. what the level is, maybe with a slowly growing economy still or a stagnant economy. And that does freak a lot of people out. The, The folks that need to be the most concerned are people that are relying on a fixed income. So if you have an income stream Mm -hmm. that is the same amount of dollars 
uh, every month or every year from an annuity or from a pension that doesn't have a cost of living adjustment or a good inflation adjustment adjustment associated with it, or you just have a whole bunch of cash uh, fixed rates that are locked in. Those are the things that are that are damaged the most by an inflationary environment, and why stocks are such a good hedge against it because they usually they usually rise with it. Stocks are going to go up and hopefully can keep pace with it. So yeah, like Caleb said, talk to your financial advisor. And if not, you can talk to to Caleb or I. Yep. That's what they're there for. That's a really good question. Really good concerns. You're thinking about the right stuff. So thanks for the question, Bob. Jason, this is the part of the show when we invite our listeners to speak easy about whatever's on their mind. This is a great place to share a recipe or a story or any thoughts, questions, and emotional outbursts that you may have. Jason, did anything come into the speakeasy this week? Yes, Caleb. Yes. Chase. <laughs> share. Do tell. Chase, who's <laughs> stationed in Italy, sent this in a, a few weeks ago, and I wanted to read it. Thanks for listening, Chase. Chase says, an interesting cocktail they consume like water in North Italy is the spritz. It's Aperol Prosecco? Prosecco? I think that's a kind of champagne, is it not? And fizzy water. I love it. Apparently, Austrian soldiers couldn't handle the strength of Italian wine, so they mixed it with a splash of water (laughs) called a spritz. It's an awesome appetizer. When you and Mandy come visit, we'll have to have, we'll just have a smorgasbord of cappuccinos, macchiatos, espressos, and spritzes. I haven't had Aperol yet, but I assume it's similar to bitter liquor like Campari, and I don't know if I'll be able to handle it. (laughs) I said that to him. He said, I think it's comparable, and the Venetians drink it with Campari, and the Vincenzo Verona area, it's Aperol. Campari is more bitter. Aperol is sweeter, I think. So I'd probably like that, Caleb. (laughs) Maybe you would, too. I also think the quality of Prosecco, Prosecco is what makes or breaks the mix. First one I had, didn't love it. Second, I found refreshing. Third, I was in love. Oh, and it's not a high alcohol content, so they start drinking it at like eleven o'clock or eleven hundred <laughs> for our military friend Chase. That's awesome, Chase! I cannot wait to join you in Italy. Please get an extension because I don't know if I can make it before this tour is up. And then we will come out there, and I will enjoy all these Italian beverages with you. It'll be great. That sounds awesome. Yeah, thanks a lot, Chase. Bernie stopped by earlier this week. He picked up one of our our t-shirts. We've got t-shirts for old-fashioned finance, everyone. He said he's really enjoying the podcast, and that's high praise because Bernie and I met because of our mutual admiration for the Pope of personal finance, David Ramsey. Ramsey. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. I I, I don't know. I had a fun show. What about you? I think that was great. HSAs and gin and tonics, man. Doesn't get any better than this, does it, Jason? (laughs) (laughs) I bet it does. It probably does. <laughs> but this is pretty good. <laughs> so can you imagine it being better than this? Ah, oh, it'd be great. <laughs> if there's anybody out there who this is as good as it gets, I'm sorry, but we're glad that we could be a part of it. So thanks for having a drink with us this week, folks. It's time to close out the tab. If you have a question or a topic you want addressed on the Old Fashioned Finance podcast, be sure to email us at speakeasy at oldfashionedfinance.com. We would love to hear from you. Don't forget to share the show with someone you love or just someone who needs a little money muddling themselves. You can stay up to date with the latest action by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Old Fashioned Finance is brought to you by Blue Jay Financial Group. That's bluejfg.com and produced by Pottery Studios. We've been your hosts, Jason and Caleb. Cheers. Cheers. 
Blue Jay Financial Group, LLC, Blue Jay, is a registered investment advisor registered with the state of Ohio. Registration does not imply a certain level of skill or training. The presence of this advertisement on this podcast shall not be directly or indirectly interpreted as a solicitation of investment advisory services to persons of another jurisdiction unless otherwise permitted by statute. Follow-up or individualized responses to consumers in a particular state by Blue Jay in the rendering of personalized investment advice for compensation shall not be made without first complying with jurisdiction requirements or pursuant to an applicable state exemption. All verbal and written content on this presentation is for information purposes only. Opinions expressed herein are solely those of Blue Jay, unless otherwise specifically cited. Material presented is believed to be from reliable sources and no representations are made by our firm as to other parties' informational accuracy or completeness. All information or ideas provided should be discussed in detail with an advisor, accountant, or legal counsel prior to implementation.